but it's got to got to be pretty soon. Now we uh, finished up a, a very inspiring chapter last week in First Corinthians uh, 15. I'm going to very quickly cover chapter 16, which doesn't have a, an awful lot in it. It does have some things that are worth noting, but it's mostly Paul's salutation and winding up the letter. So let's take a quick look at it. He says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I've given order to the churches in Galatia, even so do you. Uh, this wasn't a monetary uh, taking of a collection of an offering and a plate, but Acts and I think another scripture also indicate that uh, since there was a drought in Jerusalem, which is why they had the temporary uh, communistic approach there, everybody put everything into the pot, there was a drought and they wanted to be sure everyone ate. So wherever he went, he asked them to send food to Jerusalem. So that's what they were doing was uh, gathering fruit, perhaps drying it, getting it ready to be shipped uh, along with him when he went back. So, And he does mention the word fruit. I think it's in Acts 24. <clears throat> so uh, Protestants have used this to say, Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in the store as God has prospered him. And they use that as their excuse to take an offering every Sunday morning. Uh, but when you put all the scriptures together, it's not talking about that at all, but a gift of fruit to send to those who were in a very uh, dire situation food-wise. So he says, And when I come, whomsoever you shall approve by your letters, then will I send to bring your liberality to Jerusalem. So uh, they, he was asking them to send him word of how they would like this ship or who they would trust to get it there, um, because he wasn't going to take it himself. And if it be necessary that I go also, they shall go with me. So he says, I might go, uh, I'd rather send it, but if I need to, I'll go. Now I will come to you when I shall pass through Macedonia, for I do pass through Macedonia. Now he had written this letter uh, because he had not been able to get to Corinth to visit with them, though he had in the past. Uh, and it may be that I will abide and even spend the winter with you, that you may bring me on my journey wherever I go. Uh, sailing was difficult in the winter especially if he were sometimes going back and forth between here and the Middle East across the Atlantic. Uh, they had to be careful of their sailing times far more than they did in the Mediterranean, though it can get pretty nasty at times as well. Uh, for I will not see you now, by the way, but I trust to tarry a while with you if the Eternal permit. And then he gives his plan, I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost. Uh, that signaled better wet weather late in the spring, and he could travel uh, easier and more openly without as much fear of shipwreck as during the winter. But uh, just a nice one to mark here, uh, again, to show that they were keeping the holy days in the New Testament. Uh, the, the date of his staying there was not as important to me as it is to show that, hey, throughout the New Testament, here and there, uh, it mentions the fast, atonement, or Pentecost, 
or the last great day of the feast, and so on, to show that in the New Testament, whatever had been done away with had been, but they were still keeping the holy days. So I have that one marked. He says, For a great door and effectual is open to me, and there are many adversaries. So he says, There are things I can go and do, but there's a great deal of adversity. And that is true. Uh, was in worldwide, Herbert Armstrong had a lot of enemies, a lot of people who despised him for whatever reason who were supposedly part of the church. And they fought him and wrote books about him and all kinds of things and tried to stop him and ultimately then the work unless they thought they could take over and do a better job, which some of them did. But any time you teach God's truth, uh, you're going to have adversaries. Uh, it'll be so much more true here in the end time. God says it will be so bad that he will have to create a wall of fire around us as a defense, uh, lest they just simply come in and wipe us out, because that's what they'll try to do. And in fact, I think it's I toward the end of Isaiah 7, I believe it is, where it says that the Assyrian will even come against us and try to enslave us and in the manner of Mitzrayim or Egypt of long ago, but it will be short-lived and he will take care of it and then send them packing away from us. So adversaries are coming for us. And they may have a little bit of success for a little while. I think we have to consider that in the light of Isaiah 7. He does say he'll protect us, he'll take care of us, but he says uh, they'll come and try to smite you, and take care of you. Now, that puts Joel too more in light because he says serious trouble is coming and the context is there is the uh, northern army coming after uh, our nation and they will also come after God's church. So, uh, Micah 5 does show though that uh, seven, even eight principal men will send them packing uh, by the power of God. So, I expect some trouble. I don't expect it to get really bad because God will prevent it, but I expect some trouble. And he had had trouble. Paul had. All the apostles did and finally were killed. And, well, actually, that's what happens at the end here. Even the two that God sends to witness against the world will be killed at the end. That's just... That's just the way God has set it up. In every age, it's a repeat, is what it is. So there are many adversaries. Uh, there were within the church as well, as he mentions in other places. Now, if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear. Uh, he had just, in this letter, which he was about to send to them, he addressed them down pretty well in some areas there, and he says, uh, I want you to accept Timothy, and he might be there without fear, <laughs> uh, not knowing what some of those people and their reactions might be even to his own letter. Uh, there were carnal attitudes back then, uh, just as there are today and have been all along. For he works the work of the eternal, as I also do. So he said, respect him. Timothy was a younger man, and uh, Paul had told him in the first or second Timothy 
not to let them disrespect him because of his age. And we faced that a lot in the earlier years, right after Ambassador College was formed. Uh, Mr. Armstrong realized that it was going to be a long work, and we needed to build houses, as Jeremiah said, for about a 70-year period. And uh, some of the ministers coming out were pretty young. I, I was one of the earliest, youngest ordained. I just barely turned 22 when I was first ordained. And uh, I learned that that was too young. Uh, and yet, at, on the other hand, it was necessity. When you, you know, you start a college in 47, and suddenly you, through the broadcast, you start getting from all over the country, and then ultimately all over the world, requests for visits, and somebody's got to go see him. And all he had was men that he had just trained in Ambassador College. And some of those guys, I was just thinking about that the other day. It uh, began in 47, and I don't know whether it was after the first college year or the second college year, probably the second, he began to send out baptizing teams of guys that were 20 years old. Well, they weren't ordained yet. They hadn't graduated yet. <laughs> but uh, there was such a need that you had to use whatever you had. You ever been down to that? Whether it was food, you had to use what you had, or tools. I can't find a hammer, so I'll get a rock. I've done that a few times. You just simply, if you got something to do, you use whatever you got to try to get the job done. So there's, there was a lot of criticism about sending young men out like that, and yes, there were problems involved with it because of uh, lack of maturity and so on, and even life experience, but what was he to do? You know, there have been times out here when I said, here's what I think we're going to have to do, and people say, well, I don't like that. So my response has often been, got a better idea? Silence. They don't like what I'm doing, but they don't have a better idea. No other solution. So you do sometimes what you have to do. It may not be what you'd like or the best, that can be, but it's the best that can be done right here and now. So you go with Maybe not the greatest option, but the best one you got. That's all you can do. And trust God to then make up the difference. You know, when I, when I went out at age 22, let's see, I was, my birthday was on April 26th, end of April, and I was ordained about the 1st of June, so just barely 22 years old. But on my honeymoon on the way to Florida, uh, I've told some of you this, and maybe in old sermons, I don't remember when I last mentioned it, but uh, I stopped at the old home place where a lot, I had a lot of aunts and uncles and cousins and so on, and uh, pulled up there at what had been my grandfather and grandmother's house. And uh, my aunt told me her little daughter, Debbie, who was only, I don't know, maybe four or five years old, had not been to the bathroom and I think it was about two weeks, might have been three. She was in bad shape, running a fever and t totally constipated. And uh, here I was, 
I don't think I even had any oil in my pocket at that point. You know, I didn't hadn't even learned you needed to carry oil around. <laughs> so I asked her, you got any olive oil? Well, yeah. So she got a bottle, and I got a dab of it. And uh, my first anointing. And it was kind of scary in a way. You know, I we had always called Pasadena and gotten an anointed cloth. There were no local ministers around. Well, later in Big Sandy there were, but not in the early years when we were in West Texas. Same place where this occurred. Same land. So I got Debbie and anointed her, and, and she laid back down. Or, I know she never got up. I just anointed her in bed. And uh, my aunt and I were getting reacquainted and visiting and so on. About ten minutes later, we looked up, and she's out running around the yard playing. I don't know how many times she flushed the toilet, but uh, <laughs> she was feeling great and out playing ten minutes later. You know, that was very encouraging to me, being that young and just newly ordained, that God had worked that kind of a miracle so quickly. Uh, it stuck in my mind that, well, you know, I may be young, but in spite of myself, God's with me here. And uh, things like that helped you to go on. So Timothy was going through some of that as well. And, and uh, he says, he's young, he's inexperienced, uh, you treat him right so he can be there without fear. Because I don't know how old he was at that point, he wasn't very old, obviously. Uh, and there were probably people 50, 60, 70, 80 years old in the congregation at Corinth, and here he was come to teach them. It, it never ceased to amaze me in those early years in Miami and, and even in California a little later that here's somebody having marriage trouble, maybe they've been married 30, 40 years, and... I could sit down with them and counsel them and actually help them, and I had hardly any experience at all. You know how the help came? Simply from reading the Scriptures. It wasn't my life experience that helped them as much as it was that I knew some Scriptures I could point them to so God could tell them what they needed to do. So God was able with His Word to overcome the lack of experience that a young man might have. <clears throat> so when the answers come from God, hey, he can use anybody. Young man, old man, Balaam's ass, it didn't matter. Uh, he could speak however he wanted to speak, and he could get the message across. I always took great uh, strength from Balaam's ass. <laughs> you know, if, if God can speak through there, He can speak through me. So ask that it be His words, not your own. And that's the way things work. It all comes from God. You know, and things haven't changed. Now I'm an old man. And I still have to ask daily for God's words and God to speak. I never come to Sabbath service that I don't ask him to use his words through my mouth, not my own, uh, every week, because 
Nothing has changed that way. It's still him and his word and us as human instruments, as weak, as pitiful as we are, that he uses his instruments. And he has to sharpen us and hone us and work with us, you, me, all of us. It's not just me, because you're here to be kings and priests too, and you're training, and you're interacting with one another. And we all need wisdom and understanding from God on a daily basis for even a small group like this to get along with each other because of human nature and Satan. So it's it's a daily difficulty for all of us. So when we read this, let's not just think about you know, poor old Timothy, or poor young Timothy. Uh, let's realize that this is us every day. For he works the work of the Lord, as I also do, and as you and I here all do. What, How we treat each other and the way we serve one another uh, is a work and is the work of the eternal. What is God's greatest work when you boil it all down to one word? His work is love. That's That's the work he wants done, is love. He is love. His commandments are love. Everything he does is love. Uh, preaching the gospel is a form of it. The way we treat each other is a form of it. When everything else has been fulfilled and is said, done, and gone, love will remain. So God's only work, really, is love. And everything else comes under that. It's the greatest thing. So that's what we need to be working on the most and the various ways that God's love can be manifested and expressed between us and God and between us and each other. That's what it's all about. And uh, there's where the greatest work has to be done. What is the work of the two witnesses? It's love. Now they're going to be causing plagues, blood, frogs, floods, whatever, all kinds of plagues. But their work is love. It's trying to get these people with their hard hearts to recognize that the greatest power on earth comes from God and that they can't do anything against those whom he protects. They can't hurt those in Zion whom he's protecting with a wall of fire. You can't do anything against what God is doing. So why don't you turn and repent and love God and get blessed like those people in Zion? That's what the message is all about. It's not hatred for the world and helping Satan kill them all. It's to tell them that there is a God of love who will save you if you'll just obey him. And if you don't, he will send plagues on you. It is the very God of love in the Old Testament that sent all those plagues on Mitzrayim through Moses and Aaron to get them to understand that they needed to love his people and hopefully to love him. Now, Pharaoh partly got the message. He didn't really repent, but he says... Uh, as you go, Moses, uh, pray for me. <laughs> you know? He recognized on some level 
that frogs and lice weren't God and alligators, but that there was somebody somewhere who was bigger than frogs and alligators and lice. But what was God trying to do? He was just trying to show them that their gods didn't do them a bit of good and could actually harm them and kill them. And that's the job at the end. Convince the world that Satan is not God, and he's here to kill you, and he uses your leaders to kill you. So repent and turn to the true God. But they, but you can't soft soap it. You can't go at it like a Methodist preacher. Uh, it has to be with aggressiveness and power. And that's what God is going to cause. To try to get his message across. Well, most of them are going to die. Because they will not repent. And then the second resurrection, they'll come up and look around and say, Hmm. And you and I will say, Mm-hmm. Now it's time. Let's get with it. That's what this is all about. So he says, Don't despise Timothy. Let him work with you, because he's a minister just like I am, Paul said. Let no man therefore despise him, but uh, conduct him in peace, that he may come to me, for I look for him with the brethren. (laughs) He's kind of saying in a way, don't kill him, Uh, preserve him work with him, and allow him to come to me when the time is right. As touching our brother Apollos, isn't that scary to be named Apollos, pagan god? But uh, these Corinthians had worshipped pagan gods. And so you name your children after your gods. Some languages, Jesus is a very, very common name, or Jesus in Spanish, and a lot of them named their kids Jesus, or Mary, Maria. It's, uh, you know, they use those names. Same thing done here. Uh, some of us might be appalled and say, how could you have a minister named Apollos? Uh, and yet there was, and Paul didn't tell him to change his name. Just recognize that that's what you've been called. We're still going to call you that. Get on with the work. So he says, concerning him, I greatly desired him to come to you with the brethren. But his will was not at all to come at this time. Just another thought occurred to me. People are so uptight about Yeshua and Yeshua and Jesus and so on, uh, saying that that's a pagan name for Christ, and they don't allow for translation from language to language, really, because it's got to be Yeshua, whether you're Chinese or Jewish. Uh, is God all that really concerned? If he were as picky as some people are, I think Apollos would have had to have changed his name. <laughs> you know? But people get picky over the strangest things, and, and uh, they get so bothered by little details and Greek words, if you will, Apollos, probably a Greek word, and strain over Greek words to the point they miss the whole meaning of the Scripture, or Hebrew words, either way. And Paul warned against that because it was a problem. 
And lo and behold, it's still a problem where people get so bound up they'll spend 50 pages trying to explain one word. And they get so mixed up you can't understand even what they're talking about. That's not godly. Anyway, uh, we need to fear God and His ways and follow Him and not worry so much sometimes about little technicalities that God doesn't give two hoots in a whirlwind about. Why do we get so excited about very, very, very tiny things and let the huge things go? And we don't demonstrate love. We demonstrate Phariseeism. Whether it be what we eat or how we worship or whatever it is we do. We can't see the forest for the trees. Anyway, he wanted Apollos to come and see them, but his will was, he says, not at all to come at this time, but he will come when he shall have convenient time. Don't know what was happening in Apollo's life and in the church where he was, but uh, he didn't feel it was the, the right time to leave. But he told Paul, can I just stay? I am going to stay, and I'll go when I when something settles down here, whatever it was. So then he says, watch you. He kind of starts giving a final warning here. Watch you. Stand fast in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Christ, of course, told us to endure to the end and to stand up and have some backbone and not be willy-nilly and washed about by unsound doctrine, unsound people, and so on, but to be firm and to be strong and strong in the faith and watch. And there's been no greater time to watch than right now because things are spinning out of control in this world very, very rapidly. And then he brings it down to 14. Let all your things be done with love. Didn't I say that's what the work is, is love? Let everything be done with that. Whatever your hand finds to do, one scripture says, do with your might. This scripture says, Everything that you find to do, do it with love. Anything, everything, all your things, be done with love. Because it's the greatest thing. It's ultimately the only thing. So we need to think about that very, very seriously in our relationships with one another. Is everything we're doing, everything we say... Every eyebrow we raise, every finger we point, done with love. That one needs to be prayed about a lot. If there's any one thing you need to ask God for more than anything else, it's the greatest thing, is love. If we're praying regularly for love, maybe we won't act with so much hate. I beseech you, brethren, you know the house of Stephanus, that it, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. So he points to someone who's doing a great job that are included in the first fruits. That means in Paul's mind they were part of the 144,000. 
and how they're addicted to the ministry of the saints. You can get addicted to a lot of things. And a lot of things are bad for you that you get that you get addicted to. But addicted to the ministry of the saints is pretty good addiction to have. If we all had an addiction to each other, what a difference that would make. That you submit yourselves to such and everyone that helps with us and labors. So he says, respect those that are trying to help, who are trying to help us with the ministry, the service of the saints. And take care of them because they are doing a great sacrifice. And and it really is. You know, I, I never, personally, I don't think I ever felt so relieved as when I wasn't in the ministry anymore. That went on for 12 years. And, uh, man, that was a happy time in so many, many ways. The burden of responsibility, uh, the continual oversight of churches is not easy. People look at the ministry as a glorious thing sometimes in the church, thinking it's uh, such a highly exalted... It's just work. It's just hard. Because you're having to see and deal with bad attitudes and sin and people's problems and difficulties, trying to do everything right yourself and failing at it, and trying to be everything you ought to be, living in a fishbowl, uh, your wife sees you in the hallway and says hi as you go by. And it's a very, very difficult situation for a woman to be a minister's wife, and it's very difficult to be in the ministry. So when I wasn't in it, I, man, it was like hallelujah. It's like you lifted three tons off my shoulders. And then when Reitenbaugh and that bunch tried to get me to come back and go in the ministry, I resisted I did not want to do that. I could hunt and fish and do what I wanted when I wanted. And I could make money and I could do all kinds of things. And I did. didn't make any here, but I made some before I got here. <laughs> you know, uh, all those millions I made here, I, I'd love to have somebody count up and show me the math. When you're getting a 100 a month rent and paying on a $300,000 note, uh, you know, you don't get rich on that. It's just, I mean, people conjure up the craziest things. Just absolutely crazy. I made more money in 12 years out of the ministry than I've made in over 40 actually in it at this point. By far. By far. So when people like one here used to tell me, well, you never were out in the world. You never had to make a living. And I told him, no, I was out 12 years. I made my own living and did fine. Thank you. You did not. He's got a lawsuit against me today. Same guy. Because I got all this money. Didn't come from him. I'll bet you. Anyway, how did I get over there? Addiction to it. Now, I said all that, but I am thankful to be here with you. Don't get me wrong. 
I think God showed something that needed to be done, and he put me in this position and actually commissioned me to come do this, told me to, in no uncertain terms. It wasn't something I dreamed up. It's something he gave. And I am highly thankful to be here and doing it. And do not intend to quit whatsoever for any reason or to give up on why we're here and what I believe God is going to do here. There are people who would love to buy me out and send me down the road. They've offered. Buy me out of this. Nah. Not a chance. They're crazy. They don't know. Don't believe what I believe and what you believe, which is why you're still here. You've got to believe these scriptures that we've read. Now, maybe the information began to come from God directly, but it was all backed up in Scripture, which we've been over, over, and over, and over. Now, I am staying away from prophecy right now, for the most part, and giving you instruction and guidance and teaching and Christian living and doctrine from the New Testament, because Habit began to say, well, when is all this going to happen? He began to get frustrated with God, and he finally said, I'm just going to go sit on my watch and wait. And when God does it, God does it. And the next chapter is Zephaniah talking about the crash and about the northern army coming. So I just decided to relax somewhat instead of pushing it. God do it when he's ready. And Habakkuk said, I know God will take care of this. He will do it. So these things are now, I think, very close, just around the corner. Uh, so it behooves us not necessarily to explore those things at the moment, not forget them, knowing what God has promised he's going to do for us, because that's part of the thing that keeps us going, knowing that he's promised good things for his church at the end and has a job for us to do. Now, that should help keep us going, and I need to remind us of that at times. But at the same time, if we don't have love and do everything in love, it's all futile. What good does it do? Because that's what it's all about. So that's why he tells us, watch and stand fast in the faith. Stand like men, have some backbone, and be strong. Don't let things take you down. Don't let anybody take you down. Be strong. And do everything in love. And submit yourselves to those that are there to help you. Uh, verse 17, I'm glad of the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, for that which was lacking on your part, they've supplied. So, uh, men had come to help shore them up to help fill in some gaps in their understanding, perhaps, and to help keep them going. They've supplied that for you. For they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Perhaps they have been in contact with him and then gone there. Therefore, acknowledge you them that are such. Recognize where the help is there to help you. Do you realize how fast you would go backward and how fast you would begin to lose things 
If you did not, were not able to hear every week and have reviewed every week, I've been in that position, and a lot of people have all this breakup of the church, and you regress pretty quickly if you don't have a constant reminder week by week by week. It just it's hard to grow, and I not only since the breakup, but we experienced that. Oh, way back in the early 50s when my family was learning, there were no weekly, there were no local churches. There was no ministry. You listened to the broadcast and that was it. And you studied and did the correspondence course on Sabbath. But it was hard to grow without being led and kicked and everything that's needed to give a human being moving. Uh, it was just hard to grow. And I saw that in people. Once I went to college, and I would visit people that I'd known, and I realized that they just, they were there, and they meant well, and they were trying, but they weren't really growing. They still had no local churches in ministry. And that's why God established church houses for those 70 years, that we would be still in the clutches of Babylon so that we might grow. So that's what he's encouraging here, is that they may have human problems, and Timothy may be young, but they're there to help you and to encourage you and strengthen you and to correct you from the Word. And that can be refreshing. Verse 19, The churches of Asia salute you, Aquila and Priscilla salute you much in the eternal with the church that is in their house. So many of those churches and being founded were pretty small. They're still able to meet in a house. They didn't need a big church hall, didn't need to rent a big building. They met in houses, as we are today. All the brethren greet you, greet you one another with a holy kiss. Uh, it's hard to go up and really greet and be friendly with and give a holy kiss to someone you're not speaking to. You know? Uh, that means the attitudes had to be right. I'm not sure exactly what a holy kiss was, but uh, I'm not even sure I want to explore it. But a good handshake and a hug don't hurt anything. You know? I've, I've not kissed Nelson even on the cheek yet. I may have verbally slapped him across the cheek a time or two, uh, but not even very often at that. And that goes both ways. The salutation of me, Paul, with my own hand. So he's signing this, and he says then as a parting thought, If any man love not the eternal Jesus Christ or Emmanuel to us, let him be anathema maranatha. Now, what does love him mean? Is that a Methodist term or a Baptist term? No. John says that this is the love of God, that you keep the commandments. And he says if you're not keeping the commandments, which is love, then you're to be anathema and maranatha. Now, he had just dealt with a situation where a man was doing some kind of incest within his own family, and he had made him anathema, told him. 
have nothing to do with it till he repents. <coughs> Anathema, if you look it up in the Greek, means to ban or excommunicate. That's anathema. Maranatha means uh, exclamation of, of the approaching of God's judgment, is what Maranatha means. So he says, excommunicate them and turn them over to the judgment of God. You don't judge them. You judge the sin that is there, like this man with the incest. So he said, I'm going to, I'm going to turn that man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh until Christ save him out of it. So he was literally turning him over to Satan. Well, God does that at times, you know. He turned Job over to Satan. You can do anything you want to him, just don't kill him. Anything you want except kill him. And Job suffered an awful lot. But Satan wasn't able to kill him. But God turned one of his most beloved people right over to Satan. That's scary business. But he knew Job. And Job survived. And then Job thrived. Now, if there is that kind of sin going on, we put it out. And leave it to God's judgment. And then when we see repentance, we're supposed to forgive and move on and not hold that over anybody's head. We're not supposed to do that at all. Now we get into, well, let's finish this. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Now we get into the second epistle of Corinthians, which I feel we must do. Because in the first book, first letter he wrote, uh, there were, was a great deal of division, a great deal of animosity. There were sides being taken against each other within the congregation, which means there were factions. These were of Apollos, these were of Christ, these were of Paul, and so on. And they had made some of the ministry uh, enemies. They'd created all kinds of hard feelings among themselves, so he had to deal with that. He had to deal with outright moral issues, with some very deep doctrinal issues, with some marital issues. It's a pretty tough book, and tongues and spiritual gifts and divisions. Then he had some encouraging words at the end with chapter 15 about the resurrections, you know, is all this I'm correcting you on and guiding you and trying to help you on worth it? Yeah, it is, because there's a resurrection. And if you do what you're supposed to do, you'll be in it. So he tried to encourage them after kind of being on their back for quite some time through this book of 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> Second Corinthians is a follow-up. And after all that they had been through and after all that he had corrected them on, he felt he needed to send this. There's some some correction in it, but there's also a lot of encouragement in it as well. And that's the way God does with us. He'll chasten us, then he will encourage us. We do it with our children. We will chasten them, and then we will encourage them and show them love. 
So Paul follows it up, and let's get into it. We do have some time today. Uh, with that in mind, that, you know, you send a letter to somebody, and maybe you don't get everything that you desired in return, and you follow it up. I've been dealing with a situation here just recently where you can talk and talk yourself blue in the face, and it's not somebody here on this property. Don't start rumors. I mean, the minute I mention that, you say, I know who that was. And every one of you might have a different idea who that was. It wasn't here. <clears throat> but you talk yourself blue in the face, hoping for something to change. And then nothing changes. You know? So then you follow it up. And you try to help. Sometimes you can help. Sometimes you can't. Well, Paul tried to help in First Corinthians all the way through. And now he's sending a follow-up letter. And he opens it much the same way as the first one, establishing who he is, uh, in case there's new or some who have forgotten who he was, because some were ready to follow Apollos. Some said, nope, just me and Jesus. And others said, no, I'll follow Paul. So they picked their favorite and decided who they'd follow. So he establishes again, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, says, I'm not here of my own will, I'm here by the will of God. And Timothy, our brother, who the church, uh, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints, which are in all Achaia. <laughs> so he's introducing Timothy here. He just told him at the end of the last letter, uh, don't despise him. He's young. He's new. He had grown up in the church, but he was still young. So here he introduces himself, and he gives another uh, kudu, a kudo, or a, at least a, um, a support for Timothy is the word I was looking for. Grace be to you, and peace from God our Father and from the eternal Jesus Christ. So he says, God's grace, his unmerited pardon, his good favor be upon you. Isn't that what it's all about? Sometimes we get out of favor with God, and we have to get back in his good favor. Now, they were not, when he wrote that first letter, in, favor, in God's favor, nor were they in Paul's favor, and they weren't in each other's favor. They were fighting among themselves, back and forth, forth and back. Who's the greatest? So he says, I wish you... Grace and peace. Peace is one of the greatest things we want. And yet, we are our own worst enemies in that sense because the things we do and say remove peace from among us. And that's what he encourages here, is to quit removing the peace, quit disturbing the peace. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord, Emmanuel, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort. You and I have done this. I remember years ago, I'd pick my rebellious child up who would tell me no, or would go ahead and do right in my eyesight what I told him not to do, pick him up and paddle his behind, and if he rebelled and reared back and 
kept that rebellious look on his face. I picked him up and smacked him again. And sometimes I had to smack him until that rebellious cry turned to one of fear and repentance. And when I heard that change in voice is when I quit. The kid's not rebelling anymore. Now I hear a cry of repentance. A parent can tell that if they got any brains at all or if they listen at all. And then when I heard the rebellion go out, and he's pulling away, then he turns and softens. And I soften and hug my child to me and hold him on my lap and tell him how much I love him and how sweet he is when he's sweet. Then I've accomplished the purpose. It's not just the act that is occurring, but it's the attitude involved in the act. Disobeying is rebellion. Still wanting to, to disobey, having been punished, is still rebellion. And as long as that rebellious sound and look remain, the child has not repented and will keep doing it over and over again, just as you and I do. So he's saying, okay, I corrected you. Now, he doesn't know maybe entirely what effect his first letter had, but he knew of it. We'll get into it a little bit later here. He knew what was going on in the congregation still. So somebody had either sent him a letter or come to him and told him what the reaction was from his first letter. And they reported that things are still not right there. Now, he doesn't open this letter by saying that, but he'll get to it here pretty quick. You watch. Because he knew. So, he starts out in a loving mode or approach. Look to Christ and the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. That's what a child needs once he repents, is comfort, to be accepted, to be wanted. Now, isn't that what God told us in all those prophecies we've read? As soon as you truly repent and turn to me with all your heart, I will turn my face to you and bless you and love you and smile upon you. That's what he's told us. We've been over it in every prophecy in the Old Testament. Prophecy is not about the time. It is not about specific events as much as it is about our relationship with God. Because the prophecies of dire problems and trouble were only given because of disobedience. So the whole message of prophecy is you've been disobedient, repent, and be blessed. It isn't about the intricacies of the third through three woes or the seven last plagues. It's about our attitude. If you miss that in prophecy, you miss the whole point. You miss the whole point. Who comforts, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any 
trouble. Now he says, if we turn to God and we look to him, we go to him and he gives us comfort, what do we do? Sit down and say, God loves me, this I know, the Bible tells me so, and I'm happy now, fully on you. No. He says, if God comforts you, so you may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble. God does not expect us to take his comfort and wallow in it and be thankful for it and do nothing with it. If he comforts us, he expects us to turn around and comfort others in any problem they have. It is our duty to give what we have been given. Not turn away and say, thank you, God, for the blessings. I'll keep them to myself. I'll tear down my barns and get even bigger barns. No. You give what you have in your barns to others to help them, and then refill those barns so you can help them again. Not just build bigger barns so you can have more and more and more, and comfort's the same way. Emotional support and strength and help. When people are having any kind of trial, trouble, tribulation, punishment, uh, look at Job. He had friends that tried to comfort him in some ways, and if they says, well, Job, you really must be a bad guy. All this wouldn't happen to you if you weren't a bad guy. Well, what had Satan heard from God? He said, have you noticed my servant Job? There is one fine man. There is one of the best men that have ever lived on the face of the earth. Ezekiel says it, even says it. He says if Noah and Daniel and Job were here, they couldn't save anybody but themselves. So God, through Ezekiel, said, three of the most righteous men, if not the most, were Noah, Job, and uh, Daniel. So God said to Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? Yeah, he's a pain in the neck to me, would have been Satan's reaction. And God said, okay, go fix your pain. Do anything you want to Job, period. Just anything but kill him. Oh, boy, here we go. Wasn't exactly what he wanted to hear. He wanted to hear, go kill him. But he wasn't given that, just anything else. Now, Job went through a lot. His friends didn't trust him, didn't believe he was righteous, told him all the things that were wrong with him, didn't accept him as a man of God, even though he was probably one of the three most righteous men that has ever walked the face of the earth. But they wouldn't accept that he was a man of God. Because why would all this be happening to you if you were? Now, Job came through incredible trials. You think you've had trouble? All of his kids were killed. All of his flocks and herds, all his wealth died. 
He got boils all over his body so that there was no position he could sit, stand, lay down, or walk without extreme misery. Absolute, utter pain such as you and I have never begun to comprehend. I mean, you get one boil and you become a baby overnight. Even a blister on your heel, <laughs> you know. He had boils all over his body, head to foot. I, I don't, I can't even imagine the pain he was in. And then his wife said, why don't you just curse God and die, Job? That was really encouraging from his wife, mother of his children. Just die. Be done with it. Did she comfort him in any trouble he was in? Doesn't sound like it, unless there's something missing there that is not voiced in the Scripture. Just curse God and die. You know what happens when you curse God? You don't only die physically, maybe, but you could die eternally from cursing God. I don't know whether she knew that or not. But when Satan had done his very best to destroy Job, Job began to see the light of what he was missing in his attitude, changed that, and God blessed him more than anyone else and far beyond what he'd been blessed before. I guess his wife straightened up. He had a whole bunch more kids, and they were the fairest women in the world. He got all his flocks and herds back somehow, and Job was sitting high again. But he had a better attitude than it had before. So why, when we have troubles, trials, tribulations, sicknesses, illnesses, weaknesses, What's the point? That we might change our attitude, be closer to God, have a better outlook toward Him and toward mankind, is why we have trouble. And then we need to comfort anyone who is in trouble so that they might survive it. We are here to help them. You know, God has given you comfort. He's given me comfort, hasn't he? There have been times when I really needed comfort, and God somehow, some way, gave it. Now, what am I supposed to do? Thank you, Lord, I'm going about my business. No, I'm supposed to try to help comfort others, comfort you. That what you're doing here and trying to strive against Satan and yourself and all the trials and troubles and tribulations and sicknesses you have comfort you that God will see you through it and everything will be okay when we learn what we need to learn, when we do what we need to do. So comfort others in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. Through His Spirit, He gives us comfort. We pass it along. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds by Christ. And Christ suffered a lot, even as Job did, as I just recounted. 
And we share the sufferings of Christ. There are several scriptures about that, including this one. That a lot of the suffering he went through, we go through on a lesser basis. Now, he was a man of sorrows. He saw an awful lot of evil and sin and problems in the world around him. And it made him very, very sorrowful. He was not a happy-go-lucky person for the most part. Now, that was part of his personality, I'm sure, to be encouraged, to be strengthened, to be loving and kind, and all those things that God is, he was. But at the same time, he was burdened by everything around him. And he was therefore a man of sorrows, and as it says, acquainted with grief. So he suffered a lot of sorrow and grief in his years here. So Paul's saying, the sufferings of Christ abound in us. We suffer sorrow and grief. We suffer sin. We suffer loss. We suffer health. We suffer financial things, troubles, trials. We suffer all kinds of problems. So he says, for as the sufferings of Christ abound in us. Now Paul is speaking well here, even of himself. He had been through shipwreck, snake bite, uh, stonings, prison, on and on and on it goes. But he had been through that you and I have not even begun. We haven't even begun to have the same kind of troubles that Paul, Peter, James, John, and others had. Not even close. Now, a lot of it is emotional, though, isn't it? Our greatest stresses right now are emotional. There aren't people going around yet with guns trying to shoot us, for the most part. I've had a couple have tried. But for the most part, we don't deal with that. <coughs> But ours is waiting, hoping, trying to have the fruit of the Spirit, the patience, the long-suffering, uh, the love that we need from God. And instead, we're impatient, we get frustrated, we get selfish, we get turned in on ourselves, and poor, poor, pitiful me, all oh, the things that are so bad. You know, Paul could barely see and barely write, and yet here he was traveling all over the place, visiting people and preaching in the churches. Probably couldn't even see his watch, didn't have one. Uh, so he preached till midnight, till some kid fell and broke his neck, or whatever killed him. It might have been shipwrecked on the way there, <laughs> you know. You've not ever been stoned to death. I've had... My cousins throw a few rocks at me or shoot me with BBs, but I never was really stoned to death. We, we don't even suffer. Nearly all of ours right now is mental and emotional. And sometimes that can stress us almost more than even a physical beating. I understand that. I've heard people say, and I may have said it myself, I'd rather take a beating than what I'm going through just emotionally. 
because it can be very, very difficult. So I'm not trying to demean that uh, or set it aside, but realize that Christ suffered sorrow and grief, and those are emotional things. That's not disease. Uh, that's emotional. So you haven't gone through anything emotionally that Christ didn't suffer, or that Paul didn't, for that matter. So don't think, poor, poor, fiddle for me, I'm the only one that's suffering like this. Uh, maybe you realize you're not the only one suffering like this, but you are. And the fact that you are takes center stage in your life because it's you. You feel the pain more in you than you feel it in someone else. You feel the loss in you more than you feel it in someone else. And yet we're to love our brother as ourselves. So if we're feeling pain and struggling emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and our brother is, then we're not sit there and feel sorry for ourselves because of our circumstance. We're supposed to be helping them with their circumstance. To comfort them. So, we are going to have these sufferings. There's no doubt about it. Through much, through many afflictions, through much trouble, enter the kingdom of God. So, Affliction, trouble, sickness, whatever kind of loss, is part of life. It's part of what we deal with and come through it with the Spirit of God bubbling forth from our eyes and our mouths that counts. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. So he said, Christ suffered, you suffer, I suffer. We're in this together. So let's help each other. Let's help each other through it. That's what this is all about. Because they had a lot of suffering there that he'd mentioned in the first letter he'd written. So now he's saying, hey... Let's pull together here and realize Christ suffered, the apostles suffer. If you're suffering, just part of the deal. So get over yourself and help somebody else with their suffering. Then we all gain from it. It's for your consolation and your salvation. How we treat one another is a salvational issue. The opposite of love is hate. And if we treat people hatefully, despitefully, then we're not showing the love of God, and that can cause us a loss of salvation. Even if you do, follow every little picky pharisaical point that you think is necessary. If you don't have abounding love and help and strengthening in others, all those little things mean nothing. They don't really anyway. Arguing over Greek words, we're warned not to do, Hebrew or Greek. That isn't what this is about. It is about love and kindness and gentleness and peace and comfort. And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as you are partakers of the sufferings, 
so shall you also of the consolation. Now, I just reiterated, as Paul is, that we will go through all kinds of trials, troubles, and tribulations. It's part of the deal, it's part of the package that we accepted in the Old or the New Covenant. But there would be trouble at every hand. And it's going to get worse instead of better as the world spins out of control and Satan gets more control. It'll be better for us if we survive and endure and then live in the light of his face protected in Zion and Jerusalem. For all this trouble we're going through now, we will receive consolation. You are maybe perhaps hated by people right here on this property, but I certainly am. And you know what? If I endure it, and I do what I'm supposed to do and need to do, I'm going to have great consolation in being a part of God's work at the end and being able to be with his people and with him. And there will be great, great consolation. This will all be forgotten. He says the rebels are going to be cast out. He's going to purge them from us. They're going to go away. Jeremiah says they're going right into the tribulation, and every last one of them is going to die there. Personally, I hope they repent first and are in the kingdom of God. But that is where he is going to send them. So I'm not worried about it. God will take care of it. So, if we suffer, then we'll have consolation. He will take care of us if we do our part. And that's what he's encouraging them to do. For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. He was living under the threat of death. They were there, people who wanted to kill them and would have killed them if God had not prevented it, I'm sure. So he says, it got so bad, we thought we were going to die. You and I haven't suffered too much of that yet. I mean, not just physically die, but be killed. I've looked down the barrel of a couple guns and that is a very, very uncomfortable feeling. When you see a 12-gauge pointed at you from about 15 feet away, uh, it can be disconcerting. Been there, done that. And at that moment, I despaired even of life. <laughs> because had I not gotten over the hill quick enough, the trigger would have been pulled. I barely made it. But I think God was involved there as well. And God was involved with Paul. And God is involved with us. He will take care of us. So, whatever trial you got, suck it up, serve, help, give, do. Don't just sit around and feel sorry for yourself. That's what we tend to do as humans. Oh, woe is me, poor me, poor, poor pitiful me. Nah, no room for that. We've received the comfort of God, the promise of his salvation, the promise of deliverance here physically on this earth, and he says he will. If we came here, he says, I'm going to deliver you. Do we believe him or do we not? 
So we're comforted in those scriptures. Well, let's comfort each other with them. Even as he said in the end of 1 Corinthians, or no, it's in Thessalonians. There is a resurrection there in chapter 4. Comfort you with these things. Comfort each other with these things. So what do we need to do? Instead of feeling sorry for ourselves, we need to get together and be thankful for what is ahead of us and talk about that and be encouraged of what God has promised us instead of despairing over how bad things are at the moment. What good does that do? But we have the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raises the dead. He said it wouldn't have, we were in despair of death. We could have been killed so very easily. But we weren't to worry about that. Because we believe in the God who can resurrect the dead. So even if you have to die, so what? You'll be resurrected. We don't need to worry about it. Somebody decides to take our life and God allows it. It's okay, we'll be in a resurrection. They won't know a thing until it happens. Won't even know what we're missing. No big deal. In God which raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and does deliver in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. Now, we were told if we would give up our families, our homes, and so on, and come out here into the wilderness, we would be delivered here. What it says in Micah 4. It says, He will deliver us. Well, we've been delivered in a way, but we haven't been fully delivered because the Assyrian is yet about to come after us. And God is going to have to protect us or we would all die. So, we're yet going to be delivered even as we have been delivered. So far, it's partial. Then we're delivered physically here. And then Christ comes not too long thereafter, and we're spiritually delivered. So all these promises are here, and they're meant for us. And he's hearkening back to what he wrote them at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, about the resurrection. So you remember what I wrote you in the last letter? The resurrection's still coming. Trust in God and the resurrection, and whatever you have to deal with, deal with. Let's stop there then, uh, because... A note of deliverance is a good place to be.